Attention doctors and other healthcare workers and students. MedCon 2018 is coming to Marion University's College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, Saturday, April 14th. This year's theme is what does it mean to be a Catholic physician or nurse in 2018? Our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Berger, is the medical director of the Catholic Addiction Treatment Center in Michigan, who will focus on the current opioid epidemic. Speakers from all five Catholic medical guilds in Indiana will speak on topics ranging from counseling the unborn patient to physician-assisted suicide to management approaches to burnout. Others will clarify the difference between ordinary and extraordinary care and explain the challenges of providing medical care to undocumented immigrants. A special Friday evening student event will give insights from personality research to help them select their specialties. For more information, go to medcon2018.splashthat.com. That's M-E-D-C-O-N-2018.splashthat.com. This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern, Dr. Andrew Mullally, and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will again be yours truly. Chris and Andrew will interview me about some research I've been doing through several decades on the passion of Jesus Christ. But before that, we'll have a medical news item from recent medical literature, Andrew's preventive medicine tip of the day, and our ever-present medical trivia question of the day. But I'd like to go over to Andrew. He's got something fascinating set up for us. Yes, Recently in the news, one, one thing that came to my eye, uh, the article I was reading was done by the Washington Post, but there's been several several news outlets that have reported on this. That's a reputable medical journal? <laughs> <laughs> but depends who you ask, but I don't think this is fake news. Good, good. Really, the article was based off of a medical journal, a PsychNet, a, a psychology journal, and the article in the psychology journal states that decreases in psychological well-being among American adolescents after 2012 and links to screen time during the rise of smartphone technology, which is, you know, one of the, the pithier uh, medical journal topics. But <laughs> the, the moral of the story is that after 2002, doing annual surveys of happiness, subjective happiness in asking adolescents throughout America, they are less and less happier and this coincided well with the rise in smartphone usage among these these teenagers. Now, as we learn in statistics, Andrew, correlation does not equal causation, does it? That, that's right, <laughs> but you, you do have to bring some some questions to the table, Certainly. I'd say. Certainly. Especially they, the numbers that I saw showed an increase of smartphone usage from 2012 to present from 37% in 2012. This is use among teenagers to... 73% and and that's in 2015 and then 89% in 2016. Oh my goodness. So really over the course of even 5 years the use of the smartphone has just become ubiquitous among teenagers and there's been a measurable decrease in happiness that they haven't seen for decades before. Isn't it funny so as parents if we punish our children by taking away their cell phones we're actually making them happier. Is that our job? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, this really resonated with me because it's something that I think a lot of parents can relate to, that, that kids especially can get so absorbed into technology, especially smartphones. And one of the things that this study looked at was it didn't really matter if it was good stuff they were accessing, if it was educational, if it was religious stuff, if it was video games, if it was news. It really didn't matter. It was the time they were spent practically introspectively spending time with a device rather than with another human being, and it led to being less happy. You know, I was talking with an, an Amish patient in the office recently, and we got away from medicine, and we were talking more about theology and culture. And I said to him, what do you see as the greatest threat to your way of life? And he pointed to my cell phone, and he said, that thing right there. Yeah. Um, but, but there's something, there's nothing more worldly really, than being ever connected and lacking the ability to disconnect. I mean, you really are, you, you go into withdrawal if you're not connected to the world. That's pretty worldly. Well, it's, it's incredible for me to think of because I, I think especially adults that use technology, I mean, apart, apart from, I'd say, millennials and kind of young adults who frequently use it for just entertainment, most adults, I think, 
they recognize technology as a tool, you know, even from the, the Blackberries and the, the pocket organizers. I mean, oh, look, I don't have to carry a Rolodex anymore. <laughs> sure. You know, this is useful. But now we've we've surpassed usefulness, and now it's become an extension of our being and the way we interact with the world, yeah. which, interestingly, seems less interactive with other people. It's which makes more, us less happy. It's really easy to follow, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when did we stop using technology and it started using us? Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing, too, is, I mean, how much is too much? There's been really good data that's kind of come out that's shown less is better to a point. So kids who averaged about one hour a day or so we're slightly happier than kids with no technology, but then the more technology you get after one hour, you actually got less happy. And what were they doing with the technology? Was this any use? It, it depends on the, on the studies that you look at, but largely it was any screen time. Wow. And so even, you know, I, I think of school children. Yes. How, how often is it pushed in the classrooms that we've got the newest iPad, we've got the newest technology, the kids will be ready to use all of these instruments when they go off to college. But are we actually maybe making things worse with so much technology? Well, when I visited a medical school recently, all their lectures are online now. They have access to it. And I know I personally learned really poorly online. And I just wonder, are we going to crank out physicians who aren't as well connected with people and aren't learning their material as well because so much of it is on the screen. I mean, it's funny. It, it sounds like you're being old-fashioned and almost a romantic Thank to you. say. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, reading a book on a screen is not the same as holding the book in your hand, no. whether it's a, a great novel or whether it's a medical textbook. There's something about the tactile component, I yes. think. And I don't think it would be hard to prove that. And, and this study sort of suggests there, there is that yeah. link. It's not... It's not natural. It's not the same. Well, and, and even further than happiness, which is what what this study looked at, there's really good data about screen time, even for general well-being, such as trouble sleeping. You know, I, I get to talk to folks frequently about sleep hygiene, good sleep practices. And one of the biggest things is avoiding screen time prior to going to bed. Even when it comes down to a Kindle mm. or another uh, device that you would read a book on, it's not the same as reading the book because the screens activate the brain rather than allowing you to go to bed. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing the news of the day. Uh, Andrew brought us an article about screen time being harmful to children's happiness. So I, I guess this is something that I would definitely take under consideration as a parent. And I usually recommend to parents using screen time less than more, especially because we know they're getting it in the educational setting, and that still counts against them not only for their happiness, but also interpersonal development. So I'd, I'd say less is more. You know, as a parent, I think probably one of the most important things we could tell our parent listeners is take your kid's phone away a while, get them a nice book, read it with them, read it to them. Well, now, Andrew, let's move on to your patented preventive medicine tip of the day with your three key points. We should probably pause here for listeners to pull over to the side of the road because we know how anxious people are about hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the what, one of my ideas with this segment was to go through all the recommendations that the government gives to us. And in the first episode, I introduced this organization, the United States Preventative Screening Task Force, as a governmental organization that makes recommendations based on cost, not necessarily based on what's best for this patient in front of me, or even what's best for everyone, but what are cost-effective interventions that we can make. And so a lot of them that we've discussed previously affect all of us as we get older in different stages of our lives. Many of the later ones have very specific niches, and this one uh, is, is one of the latter. This recommendation has to do with gonorrhea, prophylactic medication in newborns. And the recommendation is that all newborns after birth receive medicine in their eye to prevent gonorrhea ophthalmica neonatorum, which is an eye infection. And I was excited to bring this up today because I know especially Chris dealing with newborns all the time, delivering them, this is something you get asked a lot. 
I'm sorry, I had to step away for a moment. I was having a tantrum in the hallway, <laughs> and uh, now I'm back to the show. <laughs> you know, this one's near and dear to my heart, and uh, most of my patients who hear me give my birth planning seminar, you know, love to hear me rant about this. But it, it reminds me of uh, of an old Saturday Night Live skit where the actors said something, and then you could hear what they were thinking. <laughs> so, so w- when your child is born, the nurse says to you in a very genteel and delicate and loving voice, is it okay if we put this salve in the baby's eyes just in case they had an infection? What they're thinking is, can I go ahead and treat your baby in case you had gonorrhea and didn't know it? Now, that's radically different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The the ophthalmic ointment is for one thing and one thing only. It's for gonorrheal conjunctivitis or a gonorrheal infection in the baby's eye. Um, that's That should be said. That should be said yeah. out loud in a complete sentence. That's my number one thing. The gonorrhea is an STD. And as I say, well, now this is, I usually say with, if there's no S, then there's no TD. <laughs> now, of course, we're talking about giving birth, so I might have to get a new tagline for that one. Well, but, you know, from a physiologic standpoint, if the woman had gonorrhea, she could, in fact, transmit the gonorrhea to the child's eye. Mm-hmm. Which, and 40% of them do transmit if mom's actively infected, which is a huge number. Yeah, and in our part of the world... Um, Gonorrhea is increasingly uncommon, but yet it's still possible. That's usually tested for in most pregnancy practices uh, at least once in the pregnancy. Or there are uh, patients, some of our listeners would probably raise their hand to be included in that group, who have zero risk of having gonorrhea. And therefore, their child has zero risk of having gonorrhea. So in many cases, it's another example of an unnecessary traditional treatment. So you've got to ask yourself, why are, why are we doing this? Why is it recommended? And, and that's what I was trying to look into. And so I went to a website that you introduced me to, Chris, called evidencebasedbirth.com. Uh, mm. One of the greatest websites on the web. <laughs> I, I really liked it because it kind of went through the history of this recommendation, where it came from, and what it really is getting down to, going back to this is a governmental recommendation um, to save money, it is very cost-effective to give all the babies this in the hopes of preventing blindness that may occur to some. However, is that rational? No, because when you're not at risk, why are we doing these extra interventions? Yeah, it's really the difference between a a population approach to medicine uh, and a personal approach to medicine between patient and physician. What's right for you, where you are in your life at this point in the world, as opposed to what does the government think is right for every person in the population? Andrew, do you happen to have a number needed to treat with this one? You know, I actually did not dig up my NNT for this one, but I did, you know, we we covered most of my top three things in our discussion, but uh, interesting little tidbit, um, highest rate of gonorrhea in the U.S., is anyone Georgia inside the Beltway, Washington oh, D.C. Interesting. So swamplands. Yeah, may, maybe uh, Washington D.C. is looking at that sample size for the recommendation. But uh, <laughs> out here in good old Indiana, I think the risks are lower. You know, on the top three takeaways, we'll do a, a three prime. And that is a shout-out to that website you mentioned. It's evidencebasedbirth.com. We'll try to put it on uh, on our website as well. It's a tremendous resource for all things pregnancy. Thank you for sharing with us something that most people don't need to do. And to finish off this segment, the medical trivia question of the day, is it a myth? Is it the truth? Does alcohol consumption kill brain cells? That's the joke. It's commonly believed, but is it true? We'll be back with you for more Dr. Doctor after we take this break on Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your host, Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guest, Dr. Tom McGovern, today discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Well, Dr. McGovern, thank you for being our guest on our show again. (laughs) Listeners know that on our last show, we were just getting into some really fascinating research that you've done over the course of a few decades on the passion uh, of our Lord. We talked about some of the horrific torture that he would have undergone before the crucifixion. And as we were finishing our discussion, we were talking about some, some rather painful physiologic details of the scourging and what that might look like and some of the things that 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 might cause. Let's pick up the story there for our listeners and sort of 
take us from there to the next phase of Christ's journey and his passion. Sure. Pilate would have seen Jesus after his scourging, but before that, Jesus got into the hands of some of his soldiers. And while in their hands, they gave him the royal treatment. They gave him a crown, they gave him a robe, they gave him a scepter, and they gave him homage. Of course, the crown was a crown of thorns. And I saw when I was in Israel on the side of the road, many places throughout the country, this large shrub that can grow 30 feet tall called the Christ thorn plant. The uh, botanical name of it actually includes the name of Christ. It's called Zisiphus spina Christi. And this plant has one to two inch long thorns on it. And in fact, I got off on the side of the road with our tour guide and very painfully extracted some segments of it, put it into a used water bottle so I could help it find its way onto my library shelf at home. Needless to say, some bleeding did occur during that. Well, this was probably plated together in a cap of thorns and just smushed down, that is a medical term, on top of (laughs) Jesus' head. And, and of course, I operate on scalps daily, and scalps are very bloody places. Scalps are notorious for being one of the most bloody places. They are. And and well innervated, which is another way to say the ability to transmit tremendous pain. Oh, it hurts like crazy. Are you kidding? Yeah, try to take, you know, a couple hundred needles and put them into your scalp at once. That's not something anybody wants to experience. And, of course, on the Shroud of Turin, you'll see over the left, eyebrow, this number three shaped flow of blood coming down from the scalp, which is probably as it was settling in the furrows that your forehead makes where the you know horizontal parts of the number three. Well, so the crown was one thing. The robe was another thing he received. It was probably a garment usually worn by a, a Roman soldier. And so remember now, he's had the scourging. His own garment was put on him. And what did it do? Well, it dried to his back with clots of blood. It had to be painful. Well, then they tear it off. I mean, you know that it's like having a gauze on, say, a knee wound and you open it up. Well, that's the whole back. Then they put this other, you know, royal robe on him. And thirdly, they gave him a scepter. Now, the word used in the Bible for the scepter is a reed. And for some reason, for decades of my life, I'm thinking reed. Oh, it's like that thing they give us on Palm Sunday. It's really flexible and there's not much heft to it. No. That's not it at all. In Israel, there's this huge cane plant that grows. Arundo donax is the um, botanical name. It grows over 30 feet tall, and these canes are like bamboo, like an inch across. So think a pool cue stick. That's what it was like that they gave him. And then they gave him the homage. And the homage that these soldiers gave to Jesus the king was to take the scepter and beat him with it about the head. Why? To push down the crown of thorns more. They didn't want to get hurt. To strike him on the face with it and about the body. And it's after this that he stands before Pilate. Pilate, somewhat horrified, presents him to the people. That's when he says, behold the man. In other words, he's thinking, okay, isn't this enough? Wow. Wow. It's hard to, it's just hard to put yourself in that place. And try to imagine standing in that courtyard, isn't it? Yes, and it would have been a public courtyard. In fact, the location of this is most likely located at the part of Jerusalem on the western wall called the Tower of David Complex. Because around the year 2000, Israeli archaeologists found the foundations of Herod's palace. And we have ample evidence that Herod's palace is where the procurators like Pilate, would stay when they came from their normal home, which is at, was at Caesarea Maritima. It was on the Mediterranean Ocean. But when Jerusalem swelled with hundreds of thousands of people for great feasts, they would come there. And do you think that the number one ranking Roman in Israel would stay in a little place next to the temple, the fortress of Antonia, or the largest, most sumptuous place that his underling, Herod, would be in? Of course, He stayed in the larger place. And in front of it was a large public area where the scourging and the trial most likely occurred. Now, Tom, you've been to the Middle East and Jerusalem several times. What what kind of different insights do you get from going there and walking the way of the cross and seeing these places? You know, that was very experiential, something I... I wouldn't have really thought of, but when you're walking, you can go the traditional 
Way of the Cross, by the way, which is about the same length as it would be from the Palace of Herod. They're both about 400 meters. What is that? Once around a high school track. That's wow. all. To the Palace of Calvary, or for the, the Hill of Calvary, from either Herod's Palace or the traditional one. But when you're walking, the streets are very narrow. They're just slabs of old limestone. And when you're carrying a cross, stopping at each of the stations, nobody is paying attention to you. Wow. And you know, that's the thing that struck me the most, is that people are just ignoring you. And then, oh, this really got my ire the last time I was there, is you're standing at one place, and there's a lot of Muslim shop owners there. And one of them, as we're saying our prayers at one of the stations, he's just beating on this drum and making all this noise. <laughs> Except when I get eye contact with him, then he'd stop for a few seconds and he'd do it again. And it's like, wow, if I think this is rude, what did Jesus experience? They, they probably don't ap- something similar, I would imagine. Uh, probably worse, yeah. Wow. So they, they don't even appreciate how significant this is for a lot of the pilgrims. No. And, and think of it. They see it multiple times a day every day. Wow. Ah, it's just those Christians again. So, Tom, Jesus arrives there at Calvary. Give us some insight historically. Why there? What's special about there? Crucifixions would be done where the most people could see them. Crucifixions were not done in town. They were done outside the walls. So what they found was an exit gate to Jerusalem where a lot of people would be passing. At the time of Pilate, Calvary was just outside the wall. Within the next 10 years, the walls were expanded to include Calvary. So we know it was right next to where the city was occupied. Now, when you go through Jerusalem today, you will see virtually every building is made of the same material, white limestone. Where did they get the limestone? From the ground. Calvary was an old quarry. Now, I was told when I was over there, in any quarry, when you cut the stone and it stays in large chunks, you keep cutting it and you pull it out and use it. But sometimes you get to limestone that is very crumbly and just falls apart. And when it just falls apart, it's no good. You just leave it there. So Calvary was an abandoned quarry, and the hill of Calvary was poor quality limestone. It literally was the stone the builders rejected. Oh, my. That's profound. Yes. That's that's an insight there that you wouldn't get just in, in reading the Bible, but from having gone to the Middle East. Exactly. And it even says in the Bible, I think on Easter Sunday, that there was, or and on Good Friday, there was a garden there. And of course, quarries typically in the spring were lush places because the sand and the dirt had been turned up for so much time there that when the seeds blew in and the rainy season came, all kinds of plants would grow up. And also because there was limestone there, there had just been some new tombs cut out, one of which Joseph of Arimathea had just purchased. Wow, fascinating. So it's something that's universal for we Catholics as we walk into any church. We're going to see a crucifixion. Um, help us understand sort of the reality from a historical perspective of how, how is Christ portrayed on the crucifix in our churches versus how he was probably portrayed that day on Calvary. We have so many prejudices just because of the way we've seen crucifixes all our lives. So when we start to see something that might be different, we think, oh, this this has to be wrong. And that was, I think, part of my problem with crucifixion research, having to realize that I had these built-in prejudices just like everyone does. So the research involves archaeology. It involves epigraphy, which is the study of ancient inscription, includes religious art graffiti, and gemstones. When we look at archaeology, only one archaeological piece of evidence has been found regarding crucifixion. Because if you think about it, if you were crucified on wood, well, how do you know one piece of wood was used as a cross versus something else? And if you found nails, they were probably reused. Well, the one piece we found was about a mile north of Calvary in an old Jewish cemetery And they have bone boxes called ossuaries. And an ossuary was found in 1968. And by the label on it, there was a young man named Yehohanan that had been found in there. And by the age of his bones, or the look of his bones, he was probably in his mid-20s. And what's fascinating is his right heel bone has a nail in it. And the reason the nail is in there is because it bent when it went through the heel bone. So probably hit a knot in wood. And what's fascinating is that this nail goes sideways 
through the right heel bone, from the outside of the heel bone toward the inside. Oh, so, so that, not through the front of the foot like we see in most of the crosses that we look at. And in fact, there is no evidence whatsoever that a nail was ever used in the front of a foot. So for instance, sticking with the feet, if you're a Roman soldier having to nail somebody to a cross, trying to put somebody's feet one on top of the other against an upright beam, all slippery, bloody, sweaty, and you have to use like a foot-long spike to get through the top loose foot and then through the foot against the wood and then through the wood, that would be tremendously difficult and anatomically awkward. Now, to have one soldier hold a heel against the side of the upright bar of the cross and then nail it in, that's pretty easy. And my orthopedic friends have told me that just because a nail goes through a bone doesn't mean you break the bone. So you stay consistent with Scripture that says not a bone of his was broken. Well, fascinating. But it does really fly in sort of our Hollywood vision uh, and, and in a lot of books and photographs of, of how Christ would have been attached to the cross. And, you know, not even archaeology. There are multiple lines of evidence. For instance, the earliest ever depiction of a crucifixion in some kind of artwork is actually two pieces of graffiti, probably from around the year 100 and another one from perhaps around the year 200. And in both of those graffiti, they show the feet on the sides of the upright bar. Mm. Then there are three gemstones that have been found in Syria dating to the second or third century showing Christ on the cross. All of these show the heels on the side of the upright post. Well, so we're, we're myth-busting here, aren't we? Or at least we're challenging, uh, we're challenging traditional thought. Right, because there's, there's no evidence for what we think. And in fact, it's not until uh, the 11th century that you see any crucifix with one foot on top of the other. Wow, fascinating. Man, well, you know, Tom, I appreciate you going into depth, and I want to learn more about the cross because I know you've unearthed some things that are unexpected about the actual cross itself. Right now, we would like to take a break, and we will be right back with Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern, Dr. Andrew Mullally, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, coming to you from the station of Redeemer Radio. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about the actual cross that Christ died on and some of our misconceptions, maybe? We often think that Christ carried a two-part cross. In the hundreds of references to crucifixion in antiquity, this never, ever happened. They always carried the crossbar. I can't go into all the details, but it's fascinating, and it's, it's virtually certain that this happened. Secondly, the size of the crossbar, again, is often listed as 75 to 125 pounds, but there is absolutely no evidence for this. In fact, when St. Helena, mother of Constantine, went in the year 325 to 330 to Jerusalem and found the cross of Christ, she also brought back the crossbar that was thought to have been the crossbar of the good thief. This now sits in a church in Rome, Santa Croce in Jerusalem in Rome, it's called. And based on the size of it and the fact that it's made of European black pine, like all fragments of the true cross that are found in relics, it would be estimated to weigh about 15 pounds. Wow, not the 100 pounds that we always envisioned. No. If somebody has better evidence, I'm completely open to it because the things I'm saying now are very much different from what I used to say in my talks. So just to be clear for our listeners, we're, we're saying the evidence supports Christ carrying only the horizontal beam of yes. the cross and not the cross in its complete state. That Correct. would have been assembled at Calvary as part of the attachment to the cross. Actually, the upright beams would have already been in place at any place of crucifixion. Probably left there because they were used frequently or not infrequently. Which exactly explains why there are no details of crucifixion in the Gospels. They were daily realities for the people who live there. They didn't need the details. Why do we have this idea that he carried the whole cross? Where did that come from? Probably makes for better artwork. Ah, I see. Well, it fits with the concept of pick up your cross and follow me, not pick up your cross beam. Well, yeah. and, and that goes into a language thing. There's actually a grammar term called synecdoche, which I recently learned about, which means that we often use part of something to stand for the whole of it. Like when we say, oh, nice threads, Andrew. 
Well, threads referring to a piece of clothing, or great wheels, Chris, referring to his car. Well, the same thing can occur with the cross. And in fact, the word translated cross in the Gospel of John, that Pilate gave Jesus his cross, and in fact, only John tells us Jesus carried his cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only tell us that Simon did. Wow. But the word there is a Greek word that refers to a cross bar. And in fact, the same word cross is used to mean the two-part cross, at least in English, in uh, later in John, when standing by the cross of Christ, where his mother and Mary and, and John. So uh, the term cross in English can refer in the Gospels to either the two-part or just the crossbar. So if we move forward with Christ crucified, for any of our listeners, if we quiz them right now, I'm sure they would tell us that Christ's mode of death would have been suffocation. That's certainly uh, the Google answer of the day. And the Google answer is due to my mentor, Dr. William Edwards. But when I look back, Dr. Edwards got the idea from Dr. Pierre Barbet, who in 1950 published his book, A Doctor at Calvary. He was a French surgeon. So I've read that book several times. And going back into it, I found where he got that idea. And he got that idea from a friend who heard it from a friend who witnessed something in World War I, a torture called Aufbinden. Aufbinden is literally the German word for untie. In this torture... Somebody's wrists would be tied together with rope, and then the patient, a patient, the, <laughs> the victim would be hung from a ceiling or a beam so that their feet could not touch the floor. And they would gradually get um, tetanus. Their muscles would contract and stay um, contracted from their hands to their arms to their chest to their um, thighs, their legs, and they would just not be able to breathe anymore eventually and, and die. And Dr. Barbet said, now I found it. That's, that's what killed Christ. The only problem is this Aufbinden is not crucifixion. There are two significant differences. Number one, in all the ancient portrayals of crucifixion and all the writings about it, the arms are stretched out and horizontal on the cross. The arms aren't hanging. They aren't above the head. The head is above the arms and the wrists where the arms are attached. Secondly, in Aufbinden, there is no weight on the feet. On the cross, a significant amount of weight is on the feet. And so that, that would make it much less likely that suffocation was the actual cause of death. Those are a couple of the pieces of evidence. Here's some more. If the suffocation theory is true, it means that to get air out of his lungs, Jesus had to push himself up on the nail or nails in his feet and exhale so that he could bring his elbows closer to his sides of his chest and push the air out of his lungs. He would have had to do that hundreds of times. When experiments have been done, uh, Dr. Frederick Zugaby, who was a coroner from New York, had volunteers on crosses, and they were held there by uh, leather-type gauntlets around their wrists and around their feet. And he said to these healthy 25 to 30-year-old men— Sounds like med students. Well, who else? I mean, <laughs> most I mean, that, that's probably the problem with much research in the world. They've been done on med students, who are not a normal group, by the way. But he asked all these people on a cross, okay, I want you to push up and straighten your legs— with all the strength you have as if your life depends on it. They're in an air-conditioned room. They know they're not going to die. They don't have nails through their feet or their wrists. And they haven't been scourged for 24 hours. Oh, I forgot that. Well, yeah. some of them, no. None of them had been scourged. They've all eaten. They've all slept. Pushing as hard as they can. You know how many times a minute they could do it? Or how many times an hour? Zero. They could do it zero times total. Never. Not wow. once. That is damning evidence that it just wasn't possible. And for our listeners, the average person relaxing in their chair at home breathes about 15, 17 times a minute. These subjects couldn't do it once, let they alone 17 times. They couldn't do it once. Times. And then I think the final nail in the coffin to that theory is that, okay, if you're dying because of suffocation, you can't satisfy one important piece of information in the Gospels. At the moment of death, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Nobody that I know of who's suffocating can cry out in a loud voice. Yeah. So it's, it's very clear to me that Jesus did not die of suffocation. 
In fact, when there are these volunteers on crosses, they talk very little about any difficulty breathing. And in the ancient documents, it talks frequently about people speaking or even spitting on bystanders from the cross. Or living for days, as you had or mentioned Or living before. for days. So, Tom, is, you know, I thought years ago when I, I thought that I had figured out that a bone couldn't be broken on, on Christ's body, and yet the soldiers broke the legs of the two crucified victims to his right yes. and left, I thought that made perfect sense because if their legs were broken, they could no longer push up. They would quickly suffocate, and they would be dead. Tell us more about that. The term used for that is crura fragium, from the Latin word to break the legs. It's fascinating, but in all of the literature on crucifixion, there's not one other crucifixion where breaking the legs is mentioned. However, breaking the legs is mentioned as a separate form of capital punishment when people are not on the cross. Yes. And so, you know— now, we know it happened in the gospel, so there is one evidence in ancient history it was done with crucified victims. And maybe that was an exception because, you know, the Jews had a reason to have them off the cross because of the Passover. So I went to the literature again. In the Journal of Emergency Medicine, there's an article that talks about acute care of fractures of the tibia, the main leg bone. And in that article, it says that if you have a closed fracture of the tibia, that means it's not protruding through your skin, you will lose an average of one-half to one liter of blood. If you have two of them, you'll then lose one to two liters of blood. If they are compound fractures where the bone is sticking through the skin, you double that. So two sides, you lose two to four liters of blood. So if the average man, that's about 180 pounds, has six liters of blood, you have just lost one-third to two-thirds of their blood. You lose one-third of the blood, and you're gone. And, and we know this person, would have, Christ in this case, would have already been dehydrated correct. from the two days of torture, not to mention all of the blood loss right. that we see from the scourging that's on the torrent. That's right. And I confirmed this with a, a local orthopedic surgeon, Greg Hoffman, who says, oh, yeah, when he sees tibial fractures in the ER, they bleed like crazy. So most likely that final cause of death in that scenario would be blood loss. Blood loss, shock. Yeah, there's not enough blood to pump to get to the brain to keep the body alive. And, and we know that the legs weren't broken on Jesus because he was already He was dead. already dead. Now, one of our good friends, in fact, our first interview on this show, Dr. Dave Kaminskis, put together another piece of information that I think makes the best sense of anything I've heard. Now, my mentor, Dr. Edwards, believes the cause of death was actually multiple things together. The only thing I disagree with him on is that the suffocation was part of it. I do agree that shock was the biggest part of it, previous blood and fluid loss from it. But then the terminal event I also agree with him on was an arrhythmia, an irregular heart rhythm. But then Dr. Dave Kaminskis gave me specifics on how it could make sense with Jesus crying out at the time of death and knowing he was about to die, not with supernatural knowledge, but with natural knowledge. And it's this, that when the body is spiraling down, it's going into you know, metabolic acidosis with you know, carbon dioxide building up in the blood and in the tissues and in the lungs, and then um, the heart racing faster and faster and not getting enough blood to it, you will go into something called ventricular tachycardia, when the heart is just racing 150, 200 beats a minute. Well, Dr. Kaminskis told me that usually the last 30 seconds or so before the heart stops beating completely, it will go into a, a very slow heart rate, and that the victim can even feel it. So if Jesus felt his heart slowing down considerably, he may have had an intuition, oh, I'm about to die. I'm going to say my last words now. And then he dies. So there's a natural explanation that is in accord with the Gospels. You know, I mean, it's fascinating to put ourselves in this position to think about these things because uh, we can think about the physiology of, of patients that we know. We can think about our own pulse and our own heart rate and the, our, the pain that we've experienced from maybe cutting yourself with a kitchen knife. Uh, and to think that was 10, 20, 100-fold greater for Christ, uh, listening to it, it, it makes him seem more human to me. Uh, I wonder if that's the purpose 
because it, it's easy to identify on some level or another, either as a physician or a, as a non-medical person, the tremendous pain and suffering. It, it brings him closer to me as a real man. We can never say, oh, he could have done more for us. We, we just can't say that. The other thing that comes to my mind, which is not nearly as positive, and as we think about the Romans and the Jewish officers and the people that were the purveyors of this horrible torture, we see that today, don't we? We don't have to watch the news very long before we're, we can witness and read about some horrific torture. Christians are still being crucified. Yeah, it would seem as though man has no limit to the pain and indignity that he can impose on his fellow man. He does not. Sad. Well, Tom, going through all of this, you really shed some light on a couple of things that I had never thought of and really disproved a lot of things that I, I thought I knew. Where, where could our listeners go to learn more about this if they were interested? Right now, the only place that has all this in one place is a course I wrote for Catholic Distance University. The course is called Another Doctor at Calvary. And if you just Google Catholic Distance University, which is at... Uh, cdu.edu, and another doctor at Calvary, uh, that course will come up. And there are hundreds of pictures in this. There are 33 audio clips in it uh, and more on the theology of suffering. Well, Tom, in the couple of seconds we have remaining, I mean, how would you summarize what decades of study on this topic, what's it meant to you uh, as a Catholic and as a physician? To know him is to love him. To know him better and what he did for us helps me to love him even deeper and more than I ever could. And yes, it brings home his humanity incredibly. Well, Tom, thank you for sharing with us all that information. And we will be right back after our break with the final segment of our show. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Andrew Mullally, Dr. Thomas McGovern, and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, we have been anxiously awaiting the medical trivia question about alcohol consumption. Does that really kill brain cells like we've all been taught? No. Tom, are you sure about this? And moving on to the next segment of our show. No. (laughs) The, The reason this one resonates so much with me is my wife knows I'm just a little bit competitive. And this question came up in a trivia night a year ago. Uh Uh-oh. And I got it wrong. Our team got it wrong because we said, of course, we've been hearing it all our lives. Alcohol kills brain cells. It doesn't. Now, it makes you do stupid things if you have too much of it. And of course, it's a mortal sin if you, you know, willingly get drunk. But it does impair brain cells and their function. It can even harm the little endings of brain cells uh, at the ends of the dendrites. But those changes are all reversible and no cells actually die. I was amazed to learn that. That is amazing. See, I always heard the story about the buffalo herd and they wanted to thin out the slow brain cells to keep the herd healthy. But I, I guess it doesn't really hurt the brain cells at all. <laughs> you, you know, it doesn't. And in fact, you know, we know of people stories where alcoholics get brain disease where the brain isn't working well. But that's not due to the alcohol. It's because many alcoholics are malnourished because they're subsisting on alcohol. So like one of the common ones would be there's something called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. And that comes from not getting the B vitamin, B6, thiamine. That's the problem. It's because you're not getting a good diet. It's not directly to the alcohol. Interesting. It reminds me when I was recently at my premier care physician's office and one of those questionnaires, they said, do you think you have a drinking problem? And I said, no, I'm, I'm very accomplished at my drinking. I don't have a problem with it at all. That's I have a that. problem without it. That's what you said. Yes. <laughs> that, that'll get you, that'll trigger another questionnaire, I think. That's right. <laughs> so, well, that is our trivia question of the day. Now, it doesn't mean that you have free range, per- right? Permission from Dr. Doctor to drink as much alcohol as you want, but it does mean that it's not going to kill your brain cells, but it might impair function. Well, next we have a unique and heartwarming story that Chris wants to share with us about an anonymous patient. Yeah, you know, one of the great things about the practice of medicine that we all enjoy is the patients and, and, the, and the families and the lives that we get to encounter. And so uh, this is a great opportunity to share some of those stories with our listeners. And I, I had one of those, one such experience recently with a patient, and I'm going to 
I'm going to call her Gloria, but that's not her name. But that's what I'll call her. At least I'll try to remember to call her that. Uh, Gloria was a, a terrific patient who I got to know during her pregnancy. She struck me as a delightful, happy Catholic woman. She had a large family. She'd had several cesarean sections. And so we had planned a cesarean section for this child. Uh, really quite routine. Nothing particularly rememberable, you might say, from a medical standpoint. So we began her C-section like we do all of them. She was a little nervous, but not particularly more nervous than most patients. She did hold very tightly to her Fatima rosary, and she wanted that in her hand the entire surgery, which is delightful to see and uh, refreshing. Gives you sort of that nice feeling. But we began her C-section routinely, and then as we went to make the incision in the uterus, the last part of the C-section, Something went horribly wrong, and I won't go into the medical details here, but it involved really her placenta had grown into the uterus in a pathological way. It's called a placenta accreta, if our listeners want to look that up. But it resulted in her losing a very large amount of blood very, very quickly. In seconds, she had lost a lot of blood. And about the time uh, this was happening, her heart stopped. And so we went from rejoicing over the birth of this beautiful child, I believe number six, to someone doing CPR and chest compressions there in the operating room. Which is um, always, for, for our listeners, when you're in the middle of an abdominal surgery and you're trying to do chest compressions, those things don't go together. Yeah, how do you keep the blood from just coming out? It really doesn't get much worse than that. It, it was really a, a mess. And so a terrific team of... Uh, physicians and nurses and and others really sort of hovered around us, uh, and we all began working, doing everything that we could uh, to try to stop the bleeding, to try to save her. We had to move forward with an emergency hysterectomy to remove the uterus wow. um, in, in an effort. So I had to tell her, your baby looks great, and here it is, and then I had to step around and say, your uterus doesn't. We're going to have to take it out. And that's when her heart stopped, ironically. Oh, my. So she, we were doing chest compressions, and her heart would start beating again, and then it would stop again. And we would do CPR more while we're trying to get the bleeding stopped. And at one point, I remember thinking, it's over. Uh, she, is, she is not going to live. And we're really, we're really just going through the motions here. This poor woman uh, has died. But she didn't, and her heart would start again when least we expected it. Well, we managed to finish the surgery, to get the bleeding stopped, to stabilize her, and to send her off to the intensive care unit. After she received some 20-plus units of blood, she had a breathing tube in. We know that as being intubated. It's impossible to speak when you have a breathing tube in because it goes you know, between uh, the vocal cords, and so yes. speaking is, is impossible. So she went to the ICU, a very sick woman, but very alive, but very, very sick. You know, when this sort of thing happens, it's very common for the kidneys to shut down, and we call it multi-system organ, organ failure. failure. And death is, usually follows that when it occurs. And she was in this state and not looking very good. So a few hours went by, I don't remember how many, and I went to see her, and the nurse told me that she was awake. She was very awake. And I just thought, that's impossible. The nurse is just trying to make it sound better for me. <laughs> I went into her room, and she was awake. And she looked at me, and all I could think to say to her was, I can't believe you're alive. I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. And do you know, she looked at me, and she held up her left hand with her Fatima rosary. And with a breathing tube between her vocal cords, she mouthed Fatima. Wow. And it was one of the most moving things as a physician of almost 25 years I think I've ever experienced. And that wasn't it. There were so many more moving moments. You know, within hours of this disaster happening, she attends a rather large Catholic church on the south side of town named after a saint who's known for her work in education. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just, just to make sure nobody knows where we're That's talking That's right. About. I'm trying to keep this as anonymous <laughs> as possible. I walked into her room at one point to check on her again, and I'm not exaggerating. I think there were 15 women surrounding her bed as though it were an altar wow. uh, with their hands together praying over her. And uh, the intensity of their prayer was palpable, uh, meaning we could feel it. It, it was really palpable 
prayer. One of the most beautiful things I, I've ever witnessed. And she survived, and she did well. And the next day, she had the breathing tube out. And, you know, one of the early things that she said after showing me Fatima again, she said, God must have something in mind for me to let me live like this, which is almost word for word what St. John Paul said when he survived the assassination uh, attempt, interestingly. That's a great supernatural perspective on yeah, life. Really, it really is amazing. Now, we would expect as surgeons and physicians that I'm going to have to defend what happened. This is a woman who would have had many more children if it were God's will. I had to take her uterus yes. out. I had to take away from her the ability to procreate. She didn't mention that. She mentioned, I'm glad I'm alive, and, and gave me undue credit for, for playing a part in that when in, in reality I had little to do with it. But I I would hope, as a man, as a husband, as a Catholic, as a physician, that if I'm ever in the position that she was in, uh, I could be so gracious and so faithful as she was. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that's going to be uplifting for our listeners. Yeah, great story about a great woman. So we'll try to bring you more interesting stories, listeners. If there's something you want to hear about, let us know, because we probably have a story about it. In our last couple of minutes, I want to pose a question that comes from a listener, Jessica Derrickson, from St. Simon Parish in Indianapolis. She says, I'm a Catholic nurse, and I'm wondering your thoughts on potential conscience protection legislation. What are the important pieces we should be looking for as healthcare providers, and what do you predict the impact will be if it's declined? Great question, Man. and timely. That is, there's, there's been a lot going on with conscience protection, or lack thereof, over the last decade, but... The current administration has been making some strides, including recently forming a new branch of health and human services that are going to be dedicated to enforcing the policies that are currently on the books to protect conscience. There's even legislation that's currently being debated and hopefully will become law that will allow individual health care providers, nurses and doctors, to be able to sue if their religious freedom's been infringed. And right now, they don't have an ability to do that. You can sue for almost anything, but there's been a recent case out east where a nurse was forced to partake and help with an abortion, but she can't even sue the hospital for making her do that. But, you know, I think that example is a great one. I would bet most of our listeners don't realize this is not theoretical. This is real. Years ago, you would never imagine that you could be forced as a nurse, as a doctor, as a physical therapist, any kind of healthcare worker, to do something that you thought was morally reprehensible at risk to your license, maybe even being prosecuted from a criminal perspective. But this is real. It's not theoretical. Much is going on with the Catholic Medical Association on this topic as well. For now, we thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters from a truly Catholic perspective. So I'm Dr. Tom McGovern. I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until next time. Try to remember, your medical decisions could have profound consequences. So choose wisely, choose Catholic. Tune in April 6th for our next episode of Dr. Doctor, featuring Ariana Grosu from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Civil Rights Office. She'll talk with the doctors about their new conscience and religious freedom division and explain how healthcare workers are protected by current laws and what options are being considered for the future. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 and find past episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.